Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have got the second part of a great big call-in show for you guys. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I decided to cut the last episode that was going to be kind of last episode and this episode in two, um, basically on the principle that I think that uh, very, very long episodes are are kind of harder than the sum of total time, if that makes sense, that you, you sort of end up with somehow there's a, a resistance to like starting long episodes. And I don't entirely know, but the, the basically the idea being that I felt like it was a, a better solution to cut things in half and have to kind of probably about an hour long episodes than one kind of two hour long episode. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, that is uh, sort of what I am getting at. Um, basically, what this episode is going to be is more kind of call in responses um, the, the majority of the sort of total time has to do with um, Jason Connerly's responses, which is uh, not a bad thing at all, Jason. I, I love getting calls from you and getting a chance to kind of discuss things with you. Um, there's also a couple of calls from Che Webster. Um, both of them are, of course, good friends of mine and uh, guys that I, you know, really like getting to, to chat with and all of that sort of stuff. Um, all of that is to say, um, I, I also thought I might, I didn't do a good job of this in my own episode, but I'm trying to do a better job of this sort of thing of sort of putting... Um, kind of a, a content warning is not quite the right way because I'm not, I'm not trying to warn people away necessarily, but a sort of content awareness thing, especially um, in the sense of kind of difficult topics that um, might end up uh, sort of uh, being concerning or, or uncomfortable to people and as a way to say that, like, you know, in, in, I think it's a complicated thing. Um, there's sort of a traditional, uh, logic or, or a sort of traditional, um, concept that goes into sort of the idea, right? That the sort of don't talk politics and religion. Um, um, in, you know, certain situations, right? That, that kind of, you know, that uh, polite company doesn't involve talking about that. And I, I think there is a there's a value to that and kind of avoiding things that are going to make people uncomfortable, but there's also a way in which that sort of hides the issue that sort of, um, essentially that what we need is not necessarily to 
avoid talking politics and religion, but a way to talk about politics and religion that is uh, effective, right? If that makes sense, that that it's not necessarily that we, you know, need to kind of avoid these sensitive topics, but also to have a way to talk about them that is that, that allows for discussion. And I think that's a big thing that is uh, central to a lot of kind of concerns about, like, for instance, I think a lot of the kind of uh, modern day sort of free speech related stuff is basically built on kind of questions about um, sort of being allowed to talk about things, if that makes sense. And, and the idea being that, you know, you might say the wrong thing and get canceled for it or something like that. And that there's a, a way in which that I think there, there is some kind of concern about that, but there's also a lot more kind of ways in which I think that kind of hides the real issues, if that makes sense, that I think a lot of the response to cancel culture is sort of, uh, or, or the kind of fear of cancel culture is a sort of way to distract from the kind of actual cultural manipulation that goes on, if that makes sense. Um, which is a whole thing, but anyway, basically what I'm saying is that, um, this episode I suspect is going to get into, um, some of those sorts of things, especially, um, I did a, an episode recently that was sort of about religion in tabletop RPGs. Um, the episode, uh, 332, um, was sort of about our religion in RPGs in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, I guess I feel like I should sort of put a kind of disclaimer up front that um, if you are not interested in that sort of discussion, um, you don't have to listen to this episode and feel free to, you know, skip this one and move on to uh, the next episode. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of I think what I'm gonna say on the subject. That um, and and that, uh, what I want to get at is that there's nothing wrong with that, right? That that I'm I'm not. There's a um, a way in which I think there's a sort of. Uh, idealization of of kind of something that's kind of related to sort of free speech and free discussion that has to do with kind of um like academic or or um uh sort of intellectual fortitude right a, a willingness to uh to engage with anything. And I think there is sort of some truth to that, but there's also a lot of ways in which that gets kind of manipulated by bad actors, basically, that, you know, the shitheads who don't really want to discuss, but basically just want to attack, um, sort of use that as an opening to, oh, you know, you won't debate me sort of thing. And it's like, uh, well, yeah, I don't, 
you know, and the, there's basically what I'm getting at is I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, you know, taking a step back and, and not engaging with anything that you don't really want to engage with inherently. And that, um, you know, basically that it's uh, totally cool for anybody who is, uh, you know, not really interested in some discussion about religion and especially the kind of real world religion stuff that I think is much more likely to end up making people upset. And I, I don't think I did a good job in the the religion episode of sort of signaling that that was coming in a way that would kind of allow people to opt in or opt out better. Um, and I'm trying to work on that, but I, um, yeah, I, I it's complicated. And I, as I have said a number of times, I'm hardly a perfect person. So, you know, counting on you guys to keep me honest. Anyway, let's get into some calls. Arlen, if I were one of my dogs, I would be very disconcerned that you've changed your podcast schedule up some. Dogs very much want structure. I'm very glad you're able to be there for Clover. That's important. Since I'm not a dog, I don't mind that you put out an episode on Monday, and I'm getting ready to listen to it. I paused it right after your explanation of why it's on Monday and your semi-apology, which is totally not needed. Um, and also to say, over the weekend, I was visiting my mom, and I also had a chance to do some reading. Been starting to reread all the Stephen King books, and I've been catching up on... I, I never read the DC Comics, The New 52, and that's where Batman... Court of Owls is and some other storylines. So I started reading all those from the beginning. So far, I'm just reading the Bat Family comics, but, you know, Batman, Batgirl, Robin, all, all those. But I've been really enjoying taking that break from doing the creative thing, mainly because I'm supposed to be doing this tutorial teaching thing for swordplay for two-hour war games, and I keep not doing a good job at it. I Everything I, I honestly, I, I kind of don't like the new version with just the metal mat instead of the old four by four table, and, and it just I, I have a, I'm having a hard time with it, but hopefully I'll get that out this week. Um, anyhow, let me listen to your podcast. All right, Jason calling in about episode three thirty. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know. It's one of those weird things that I feel like. Um, the sort of structure is helpful, but you also don't want to be kind of beholden to the structure. You're sort of, you want to be sort of beholden to your kind of, uh, or not even necessarily beholden, but kind of use the goals as an aspiration, but not as a, a right. If, if, if not achieving your goals is becoming a source of concern, then they're not sort of working as intended, right? Um, and that's sort of one of my whole things about kind of scheduling and structure and all of that sort of stuff is figuring out how to sort of maintain them effectively as an aspiration without allowing them to become an issue in that way. Um, but I'm I'm glad that you uh, are okay with a little bit of uh, off structure stuff. Um, I'm glad you got a chance to uh, get some reading in. 
I have definitely been, um, it's one of those things that I sort of always, every time I come back to it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is really valuable and really good for me. And why do I forget that? And, and the sort of importance of, um, you know, especially in my case of, uh, reading that I feel like I, uh, just benefit so much from spending time uh, reading books instead of all of the kind of other, especially the sort of useless things that I might otherwise spend time on, like, uh, you know, watching uh, uh, RPG videos on YouTube that aren't very good or, or even just kind of, you know, wasting, wasting time randomly that there's kind of, yeah, all sorts of things that I, do that are not super uh useful although there is sort of importance there too of like being okay with kind of wasting time and not kind of letting that uh sort of harm your psyche either because that's important too but anyway um yeah glad you got a chance to get some reading in i um i'd be interested to hear about the sort of swordplay thing i um have not I don't think looked at the newer version of swordplay, or if I have, I have not um, very recently. Um, and uh, I, um, yeah, I, uh, what was I trying to say? I really like some of the two-hour war games stuff. I really, I, I think I mentioned that there's a, um, the, the, I can't remember the name of the one, but it's the Viking one. Um, and I really enjoy a lot of the things about that one, especially kind of the, some of the sort of, um, structural elements that are a little bit gamist, but I think actually kind of work quite well. Um, the way that you divide up the table into sections and that you're, you're not really concerned about kind of free movement on the tabletop, like a lot of miniatures war games, you're, you know, moving between different sections and that that's kind of a, a really cool thing, especially because it makes, um, playing, uh, in kind of different ways easier uh, especially like playing solo and things like that um but anyway i uh yeah uh i'm, I'm glad you uh, appreciate the value of all those things i was talking about appreciating the value of myself because that's nice okay arlen i paused the podcast before you talked about you got into your whole evaluating what is a good not a good game um because I want to get some thoughts out before I forget about them. Definitely, I think you should play Rules as Written, because as it reads, might not work as well as you said. A great example of this is Savage Worlds. If you read Savage Worlds, you're going to see that dice explode when they roll the highest number. And you'll see that a D4 is going to explode more often than a D6. And you might think, well, that's not fair, because a D4 is a lower skill level, so I'm just not going to have D4s explode. Well, that... It, once you play Savage Worlds, you see it actually works out fine the way it's designed to do. But when you read it initially, it looks wonky. So I think you're right. 
as far as unintended consequences, there's no question about it. Your example about the missile fire and hits on a natural one is a great example, that unintended consequences. Or maybe a crafty DM doing intended consequences, weighing it towards him and his people. Although one would have to assume that the players hired a ton of hirelings and had, you know, brought a score of archers with them, then it would work in the players' favor as well. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I definitely... And, in, you know, critical hits are another way this can happen when you add critical hit rules because the monsters tend to attack... Like, as you mentioned, there tend to be more monsters than heroes, so the monsters attack more often, hence the monsters roll more critical hits than the heroes. So if you add that in as a house rule, chances are your heroes are going to suffer more critical hits than the bad guys are. So... You know, I'm with you on that one as well. Jason has more to say on the subject, but I thought I would hop in here and say, yeah, I think there's a lot of um, kind of bits with that, especially I've been thinking a lot about the way that um, sort of three third and 3.5 and Pathfinder handle critical hits, that it's not uh, every weapon has a different kind of critical hit range, but then there's also a, you know, confirm crit element, which I think is a kind of a remarkably clever thing because it means that, you know, you sort of prevent critical hits on yourself by upping your AC because those crits aren't going to be confirmed as much. Although it is one of those weird things that it kind of uh, affects different levels differently. One of, one of the, I think the big things about, um, critical hits is that obviously if you right for instance if you double damage on a critical hit if you have you know like d8 die damage dice and d8 hit dice and you know especially if you double bonuses uh, different systems do different things with that but i think uh, many of them you double the number of dice but not the flat bonuses that you like get from high strength and stuff like that um but that that is you know a, a sort of instant out for a low level hero but it's a it's a it's an issue for a high level hero that has kind of enough hit points to take that that you know oh i lost a, a big chunk of hit points but for a low level hero that can be uh you know oh that's it better roll up a new character or start rolling death saves or whatever else and i think there's kind of a, an interesting thing there that sort of confirming crits kind of helps balance that out in some ways because it you know it makes the game sort of less of the sort of search fishing for twenties um, isn't as much of a factor, but anyway, um, I thought I would hop in there and just mention that as a kind of mechanical uh, adaptation that I actually quite like. And, and when I say I'm with you on that, not that you shouldn't house rule, but that you need to weigh the consequences and look at, the, the trickle-down effects of doing your modifications to the rules because one thing can, can have, you know, those ripple effects that you didn't expect. The last thing I want to mention is taking rules in, you, you know, in, in, the, in good conscience or good, I forget what. See, I already forgot the way you phrased it, and I tried to record this right after I heard you talk. <laughs> good faith. Taking the rules in good faith. And I think what I did with the cyberpunk modifications did that. So when we talked about, and, and I talked about the, the house rules I did to Cyberpunk 2020 with you guys, one of those was if you're going to, you know, use luck to change a role, the game wants you to add that luck before you make the role. 
and I let you do it after you make the roll. Now, is that against the way Mike Pondsmith designed it? Yes. Does it really break the game? No, not really. It's a limited resource. You, you know, it's like anything that lets you do a re-roll. And, or, well, it's, you know, being able to add those points to your roll for that, you know, to pull it through. It's like any other meta-currency kind of thing. And I think there's a definite difference in having to spend meta-currency before the roll or after the roll. And that's maybe a different discussion, but I think either one's valid. And I don't think we're breaking the game or necessarily doing anything against the game by doing that. The same with allowing soft armor to deteriorate slowly and the armor value go down eventually. Um, I, I don't think that was breaking the game. I think it, it helps the game a, a little bit because it makes it gives you a chance against thugs that are totally armored up, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. House rules need to be really considered and think about the rules and everything else in the rules before you apply them. I'm an advocate of playing the right game. So if you have to house rule your game so much because you want it to look like a different game, I think you're better off playing that different game. But I'm not against house rules altogether. I, I think it's okay to do house rules as long as they're considered, as, as long you know, within the kind of guidelines you've already set forth. So there's no need for me to repeat them again here. But they, they should be within good faith. They shouldn't be unbalancing. And, um, yeah, you, you need to consider them. So, and, and I think you don't do a ton of house rules. I think if you have to have pages of house rules, then probably you should play a different system. That, that's just my feeling. But, again, my intention is not to tell people not to house rule. I think if somebody wants to house rule their game, that's their game. And if they and their group are happy with that, then that's great. I am definitely not telling people they should not house rule. I, I'm just looking at it that way myself. Yeah, I think as usual, Jason has uh, done a great job of, of kind of clarifying a lot of the things that I was trying to say, um, which is uh, in part to, to kind of be very clear that I am not uh, fundamentally against house rules, I guess, is, is the way to sort of put it. Um, which is to say I house rule my own games and play in games with house rules and all that. Um, but I think there is an, uh, the, the sort of um, idea of the episode was less, you shouldn't house rule and more about the idea of a, a kind of value associated with um, the rules as written um, that I think sometimes goes uh, unstated or um, unexamined in a lot of ways. And I think one thing that's sort of tied to this is the, um, the sort of fun of tinkering that um, is something that I think a, a lot of game masters, especially game masters of games that uh, lend themselves to uh, house rules or tinkering or all of that sort of stuff. I, I, I do think that's one of the things that can attract game masters to those games is that there is a, you know, a space for that kind of tinkering, um, which is, uh, again, not a, a bad thing by any means. I think the, the point that I am sort of trying to 
get at has to do with um, sort of thinking about value and process and, and trying to understand whether or not um, that's kind of the best way. Um, and I, I do think you sort of hit the nail on the head in a lot of ways, Jason, of very similar to my thoughts that, you know, if you need the sort of more house rules that you need, that's a, a testament to the the game not necessarily being the right choice, right? That you, you know, you're kind of working on tinkering with a system to get it to do something um, that it maybe is not kind of built for as much and that, you know, there's, you know, a, a, a sort of point there about how, you know, you could just play a system that is built to do what you are interested in doing instead of, you know, getting busy with the sort of other uh, things that you might um, do, right? Um, and I think that's a, a sort of a point that there is a there is a, a value and a fun that comes out of that kind of mechanical tinkering. Um, although I do think there's a way in which there's something kind of um, complicated about that, which is to say that in a sort of uh, traditional sort of um, a traditional sort of GM and players structure, I think one of the things that you uh, get into with that is that, you know, the GM is the one who is having fun doing all of these house rule things, right? And that that is not a bad thing, but it sort of speaks to what I think is kind of a, um, I don't know, there, there's sort of a way in which like, uh, you know, it, the, there's a sort of question about the value of house ruling and the way that it relates to everybody else's experience at the table, right? The idea being that, you know, well, you're having fun doing all of these house rules, but, and then getting to kind of flex your design muscles and, and tinker with the system and all that sort of stuff. But what about all of the other people at the table? Um, isn't there sort of a, a question there that is worth considering? Um, and I think that's a, a real concern of mine. Um, it's part of, um, part of uh, what I like about solo plays, the way that I feel like I, you know, don't have to worry about anyone else's kind of expectations or, or interests or anything like that. I can just kind of do whatever I want and it doesn't matter what other people want because it's, it's just me playing. Right. Um, and um, yeah, there's something, I think there is something kind of important there about sort of the uh, kind of, I don't know, the, 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 um, the sort of role of uh, house ruling and um, 
tinkering and the sort of fun of doing some level of kind of amateur design, for lack of a better term, and the way that that, I think, gets into, um, you know, I, I am of the opinion that that's where a lot of the kind of justification for house ruling comes from, that it has to do with the kind of idea of, you know, fit the game to the table, but that fitting the game to the table is something that is sort of generally very much the purview of the GM in that sort of traditional structure. And there's kind of a, a question there, I think, about, you know, uh, in essence, the, the way to put it might be, well, why is it the GM's job to kind of figure out the system that is going to be the best for the table? Um, why can't everyone be involved in that? And that sort of puts a kind of interesting point around house rules that, you know, what if a player wanted a house rule, something that they didn't like about the way the system, that they wanted it to work differently? Um, and I think that is a, an important consideration with regard to the kind of uh, asymmetry of um, RPGs with GMs. Um, and that's one of those things that I've been thinking about a lot, but it, it sort of goes back to um, kind of what uh, you were talking about in the, the previous couple of call-ins about the way that, you know, there are kind of rules that, you know, apply to both players and monsters, but that end up kind of working differently for the players and the monsters, right? Like the way that, you know, often there are more attacks coming from monsters than there are coming from players in kind of mob attack situations. And so, you know, a, a nat 20 being an automatic hit no matter what is something that benefits the the monsters more than the players if the monsters are mostly kind of lower hit die mobs and things like that, right? In the same way, I think there are some, one of the things that I think about uh, with sort of old school games is that there are, I think, some mechanics that are um, quite honestly, just not very good that have sort of been grandfathered in, um, level drain, I think is a big one, which is to say that I think that the, the sort of unspoken, um, agreement of adventuring is that what players get rewarded with is experience so that they can take on greater and greater challenges. Um, level drain at low levels is very dangerous because you might turn into a white yourself. But if you have a number of levels and you're not likely to actually kind of die from the level drain, I think it becomes much less kind of, ooh, this is fun and scary and much more, God damn it, I've got to, you know, get another thousand experience to get back to where I was, right? My, my character's ability to, because level is so central for the character's ability to kind of um, alter the fiction of the world, that level drain basically just ends up often with kind of mid-level characters, meaning, you know, oh, I've got to grind for more levels now. And that that's inherently kind of not fun and also sort of breaks the unspoken agreement of, you know, the reward for adventuring is 
leveling up and being able to kind of take on greater challenges in the world and all that sort of stuff. And basically what I'm saying is that there's, I think there are other ways to create a mechanic like that, that makes undead feel dangerous and deadly, but that doesn't kind of break down the sort of implicit structure. Um, and that, uh, that is actually a place where I think, you know, house rules might be really appropriate for a, a table, but there's sort of a question there about kind of the, I think that, that, that sort of gets into, well, that's a sort of place where kind of the players need to be able to initiate the house rule discussion, right? That even if the game master is the one who's going to say kind of, you know, whether or not the house rule is what the table is going to play with that the the players because that is something that you know so thoroughly affects player characters and not really anything else in the world that there's sort of a an issue there and, and in my opinion a great deal of the sort of um inheritance of level drain basically comes from dms who like it and don't necessarily want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of whether it's actually a good mechanic or not. Um, yeah, that's sort of my, my comments there, but I, I think there is a, a kind of interesting, um, discussion to be had about a lot of this stuff. And, and especially I think the kind of idea of, um, value and, and the value of, playing rules as written, which is sort of what I was trying to get at. Not that you, you know, shouldn't house rule or that you shouldn't kind of tinker with um, the uh, particulars of a uh, system to fit the table, but that there is a real kind of uh, value in approaching a system in, in sort of good faith as written um, as a sort of part of the process of understanding that system and, and utilizing that system for the table. Okay. So for evaluating the games, I, I agree with you. You need to evaluate games that rules is written. And there's definitely a question of, you know, how much fun does the game bring compared to how much the group brings. But I think maybe you picked on the wrong thing a little bit with Phoenix Command and Maddie. Yeah. You want me to tell Arlen what? Okay. I'll tell him, buddy. I'll tell him your ball's stuck. I'll get your ball out. There you go, buddy. Okay. He got his ball. So, what was, oh, picking on, like, so it's like Phoenix Man and Rollmaster. People, and you have to sift through the comments, right? So you go and you look and you see, and why do people love these games? And you have to read comments from people that played them, not that just read them. Because when you read the comments from people that haven't played the games, they've just read them, they're going to tell you how horrible, how complex they are, and everything else. And you read the comments of people that enjoyed the games, what their highlights are, why they enjoyed them. For Rollmaster, they're going to oftentimes quote the critical hit tables and the great quotes in the critical hit tables, the great results. They're going to quote memorable fights they had. They're going to quote things like the ability to split your offense and defense. Your, and the ability to have your character do anything. It's a little bit harder 
to have, I mean, there are kind of sort of classes in there, but anybody can learn to do anything. Um, there, there's a lot of things to like about Rollmaster. It is crunchy. It's not for everybody. But when you look, people have, when people talk about why they love that game, they talk about moments in the game that are because of the game system, because a direct result of things the game enables you to do. You'll see less out there on Phoenix Command, but it's out there. And, and if you search, you'll see, and most people agree with you that Phoenix Command's not a great role-playing game. It's a tactical combat simulation. Phoenix Command is squad leader, right? It's that kind of thing, or advanced squad leader, I mean. And, but to the nth degree, right? And, and because of the those kind of aspects of it, when you look and see the comments, people that love it, enjoyed it, they loved being able to, like, to set up the firefights and, and do squad-level skirmishes. And even though it doesn't read the way you may want it to or give all the results you may want it to, the game provided those people that enjoyed it, it the game system was essential to what they loved about it because they're willing to take all night to play out a 30-second firefight because they love the detail provided. That's not going to be all groups, but the groups that loved it loved it because of the game. I am not, I collect leading edge games because I collect weird things. I collect all kinds of weird things. So I don't collect leading edge games because Phoenix Command is the best RPG out there. If I want to run realistic, well, okay. If I want to run quote unquote realistic combat, I'm going to use something like Interface. I'm going to use Cyberpunk 2020. I think Cyberpunk 2020 is a good balance towards a semi-realistic game and speed of play. So that's what I would use. But these other games have value in that the people that play them, when they say why they like them, they do quote the system and why they like them. They like it because of the D1000 hit location tables. They like it because, you know, of the various things you can do. So I don't know. Um, no, like I say, nobody's going to claim these are the best games, but they're definitely give memorable play experiences. You know, when we look at, and, and that's going to go across the board, it's just going to be different different strokes for different folks. Look at um, Attack Vector Tactical. I think that's the right name of it. It's a 3D combat space simulation. It's, it's again, it's a war game, but it's 3D space combat. It takes forever to run. Ask Che about it, Che Webster, He's he's got it. It, it, it's this crazy complicated game where you're using 3D mechanics to do space combat. In the end, does it do better at that than, say, X-Wing does from Fantasy Flight Games? X-Wing's faster. It's arguably going to be more fun. But to a subset of people that enjoy that saying, I did it in 3D, you can't beat Attack Vector Tactical. I think that's the right name. So it, it's just going to depend on the viewer, you know, on the user which experience they like better. So in the end, it is subjective. Ultimately, I think we need to find other people whose tastes are similar to ours. And then once we find another gamer who has similar tastes than ours, then we their evaluation of how fun a game is, is more valid. And it's going to give us more information. Because if your idea of fun is you only enjoy... Powered by the Apocalypse games, and my idea of fun is Battletech, the, you know, then we're going to have two totally different evaluation styles and pick two totally different things. And I pick two totally different things on purpose 
because you need to go to like people to evaluate fun. I, I, I don't think there's a universal measure of fun in game mechanics because I think gamers individually break down into the into those subsets that Che Webster talks about all the time. I know this isn't very helpful. Um, sorry. All right. So um, great stuff from Jason. And I, I want to start with saying that I really agree with a lot of the stuff that he said. Um, I think he is uh, correct about a lot of this stuff, but also sort of fixated on a specific example that I used kind of rather than the sort of core of the argument in in some ways which is not i think that speaks more to the the fact that i kind of didn't do a great job of of talking specifically about kind of what i was getting at um that uh, part of my point about the the you know people talking about how they enjoyed phoenix command is um i totally agree that i think there are a lot of people that really liked that game for the system that they were really, you know, really enjoyed the uh, kind of, you know, the, the the detail, the crunch, the way in which that system, uh, you know, provided the kind of specific um, mechanical elements and detail of, of sort of play that um, I think a lot of people really kind of, you know, got very much into. Um, my point was less about, about Phoenix Command is a bad game, um, and more about the, uh, I think there is a, a sort of logical fallacy that is being committed when you say, you know, well, I had fun with Phoenix Command, and therefore it is a good game. Um, and, and what I'm getting at sort of has to do with um, sources of fun in the way that, you know, if what you did was you had fun with Phoenix Command, and the way that it models all of the different stuff and the, the sort of systematized elements there, that that is great. Um, I think the issue and, and what I see as sort of more of the issue is less of kind of um, less related in a lot of ways to something like Phoenix Command and more related, I'm once again going to say something mean about the OSR, but um, that in my opinion, a lot of OSR stuff sort of comes from this route, that there are uh, a number of people who don't necessarily kind of like the system more of these kind of TSR era games. Um, but that if you kind of listen to a lot of the sort of TSR, a lot of the, the sort of OSR stuff, that I think a, a really common refrain is that, you know, this reminds me of the way we played back in the day. And that's totally fine, um, but it sort of gets into different kind of sources of value, right? That, you know, reminding you of the way that you played back in the day is not necessarily kind of inherently um, valuable because of the system, it's more and I, I think it it speaks to something that I uh, and I I'm, I want to emphasize that this is I think something that very much applies to me that I I definitely have you know things that I you know like associate with you know I was you know when I was a, a kid I watched the Lion King the movie so many times 
that I um, broke not one, but two VHS copies of that movie um, because VHS tapes would, the, the, the process of playing and rewinding the tape damaged the tape itself, right? And so eventually you would kind of break the VHS tape from watching the movie a bunch of times. Um, apparently fast rewinding actually was sort of worse for the tape and we had a fast rewinder, so that may be part of it. Um, but anyway, the, the point being that the, the actual tape itself breaks down in the process of being read. Um, and so when my parents finally got rid of their old VHS player and all of the VHS tapes, um, because there was a copy of uh, A New Hope stuck in the VHS player and it didn't actually rewind. So you could basically watch like, you know, a couple seconds of credits and rewind back through it uh, and then it would hiccup and anyway the point being that the copy of the lion king that they got rid of at a garage sale or whatever when they got rid of all that stuff was the third copy of the lion king that we had gotten because i watched that movie so many times as a kid um which is to say that now as an adult i could watch that movie anytime and feel better from it basically that uh it, it's something that i really love um, and I do think that The Lion King is a really good movie, but I do think that part of my attachment to it is not at all based on it being a good movie, right? That part of it is that it's a good movie, and part of it is that I watched it so many times as a kid and, and that it sort of, you know, therefore sort of speaks to me in some ways um, as far as kind of, you know, thematically and, and of things that I like and all that sort of stuff and was sort of formative in the same way that I think there are a number of, of movies and books and even some that I uh, haven't necessarily kind of gone back to as much as The Lion King in part because I suspect they are not nearly as good as The Lion King. Um, but, you know, movies that I remember watching a bunch as a kid and, and things like that that I remember kind of really uh, liking and, and some of them are actually good and some of them are, well, I was a kid and had shit taste because I was a child. Um, and, and the point that I'm getting at has to do with the, the sort of evaluation um, of the thing versus the evaluation of your experience related to the thing. Um, and the way that sort of ties into discussion, because I do think there's a lot of, especially, um, I think Phoenix Command is a great example where a lot of the people who liked Phoenix Command liked it because of the system. But I think a whole lot of the people that, you know, talk about nostalgia for like Redbox BX or Redbox Basic, that um, it has not necessarily as much to do with the idea that the system of BX is so good and much more to do with the way in which that was, you know, the role-playing game that introduced them to role-playing games and that they had so much fun when they were, you know, 10 or 11 and that it's a, you know, there's something sort of wonderful about going back to that. Right. Um, which is sort of what I'm, I'm kind of getting at about the, the discussion of, uh, you know, system value that I think there is a, an important kind of distinction that is worth maintaining that has to do with kind of, you know, having fun with something versus uh, kind of it being inherently 
good in some ways, if that makes sense, right? That, that like, you know, in the same way that it's totally possible to have lots of fun watching not very good movies, it is also totally possible to have fun playing games with your friends without necessarily playing a game where the system is providing very much fun. Um, and that's sort of what I'm, I'm getting at. And I, I, I actually think that in, in some ways, the sort of examples of, of Phoenix Command and Rollmaster are, are not as well suited for that argument because the reason that people like those games has to do with the, the system itself. Um, as opposed to some other games where I think the system doesn't play as much of a part in enjoying um, the, the play. Um, although I do think there is a kind of point about sort of stated uh, intentions and goals that is kind of important, which is to say that I, I don't think it is... Um, I think there is an important point about the way in which kind of Phoenix Command kind of justifies itself as being related to this kind of realistic tactical play and that um, there are some kind of fairly unrealistic things going on in the system uh, and that there's a sort of um, important uh, discussion there, which is not necessarily to say that there's right there, there's not anything wrong with a, a with that necessarily in terms of having fun, right? Realism does not create fun is I think one of the sort of core um, things to, it's one of those things that is worth, you know, thinking about. Um, but also there is kind of a, a value in a game sort of identifying itself and what it does and, and almost the sort of self-awareness of the text um, and I think that is something that um, is important. Um, it, it, in particular, it speaks to kind of one of the things that I really like about um, Sword and Scoundrel is that Sword and Scoundrel does a wonderful job of talking about kind of this is how this game works and this is what the flow of play is like and this is what it's for, right? If you If you want to play in this way and with these considerations and all of that sort of stuff, this is the game that you want to play. And if not, this may not be the right game. And that is sort of valuable too. It's sort of secondary to the design of the system, but I think there is a, a real kind of value in that kind of um, clear discussion of the nature of the system, especially not necessarily from the perspective of uh, playing that particular game but in deciding to play that particular game if that makes sense that um you sort of benefit from essentially benefit from like uh that discussion not in like you know sitting down to play oh well you do sort of benefit from sitting down to play from having that discussion available but that there's also a benefit that comes from kind of flipping through the book and saying okay is this going to be the game for me if it is able to kind of clearly state what it's sort of about um and i think that sort of gets into um an important point that has to do with kind of 
the difference between realism and verisimilitude that is worth talking about um, some other time in more detail, but that, that in essence, I think there is a, a really important point about the way that kind of um, realism and verisimilitude are sort of about realism and verisimilitude and, and I guess kind of comfort and expectation, right? And, and the way in which kind of, um, for instance, I think that there are a lot of kind of expectations around sort of particular things that end up causing the real thing to feel unreal. Um, and, and I know I've gone too long in this response, but, um, specifically a great example of this has to do with like classical, uh, architecture and art, which is to say that, um, in the actual classical period, um, part of the reason that like the, the Greeks used marble for a lot of their statues is because marble is very, very hard and it has a very consistent crystalline structure, which means that it holds edges and shapes very, very well, as opposed to, um, cause it's partly cause it's a metamorphic rock as opposed to like a sedimentary rock where you have all of these kind of weird folds and, and kind of cracks and lines and stuff, right. You, you can't really, um, create that kind of a, a marble statue in, in like limestone, right? Um, it sort of needs to go through the process of, of crystallization involved in marble to, to hold those shapes well. Um, but one of the things is that they did not leave them as that sort of classical um, plain marble that most ancient world statues were painted and they were painted very realistically to the best of our knowledge and that they probably looked less like this kind of idea that really sort of comes in a lot of ways from the renaissance about kind of classical statues and they would look more sort of like a, a wax museum <laughs> display almost that they're these sort of kind of uncannily realistic uh statues of of potentially even real people sometimes um and that there's something very very different about that and it gets into kind of you know cultural expectations right that if you you know i think there are a whole number of people that um sort of without that kind of specific historical knowledge would respond to you know, painted statues as what the hell, that's not what, you know, classical stuff looks like when the actual sort of truth is, well, you're sort of, you know, your, your kind of idea of the nature of the classical is uh, causing you to react to a, the idea that is sort of making it almost harder to approach the actual classical because your kind of expectations of reality are, are different. Um, and I think that's sort of one of the things that I'm getting at with regard to Phoenix point or, or Phoenix commander, whichever Phoenix point, I think is the video game adaptation. If I remember that sort of was trying to steal XCOM's thunder and apparently it is interesting, but also kind of broken, um, which is, fine. Um, anyway, the, the idea being that there's some kind of, uh, interesting stuff that goes on with regard to kind of realism as, uh, argument or, or sort of realism as, as a, a rhetorical stance, 
um, that I think is would be worth discussing um, with regard to Phoenix Command in particular, and Rollmaster in some ways, and and a number of these other games. Um, you know, the Riddle of Steel also kind of fits into that because there are some kind of core elements of the Riddle of Steel that are uh, and and of the sort of expansion games that are kind of funky in in that sense i guess for lack of a better term so anyway um yeah all of that is to say i i really agree with you about that sort of stuff i think jason that you uh you, you everything that you said i think is very much true um i think that to me the point sort of is is less about kind of phoenix command and role master specifically and more about the idea of sort of the role of nostalgia in gaming and things like that and um the way in which kind of there's a, there's a, i think an important point about the difference between evaluation of games as a tool for talking with other people and evaluation of games as a tool for understanding your own expectations um and and i think both of them are valid but that self understanding is i think sort of more important in this discussion partly because fun is so subjective and that um i think there are a number of people who sort of delude themselves into thinking that their sort of system choice is fun because of the system when it's not really. Um, and, and I don't think there's any kind of particular group where that's kind of necessarily more or less common. Um, I see this a lot with kind of 5e people that, you know, they're like, well, 5e is the game that I know. Why would I play something else? It's like, well, but, you know, there's, there's lots of other games. And especially if you're playing a game that is sort of built around all of these things that 5e doesn't do a great job of handling mechanically, that's not to say that you can't have fun with it, but it might be worth trying. You know, if you want to play a, a sort of intrigue Game of Thrones style game, you know, Green Ronin Sword Chronicle or Burning Wheel or something like that might be a better fit system-wise for what you're trying to do and that... You know, I think there's a, a, a fair bit of um, kind of uh, in certain circles, a sort of fair bit of resistance to the idea of, you know, trying something else that might be a better fit for whatever reason. Um, and that's fine, right? It's not, I'm not their dad. I don't need to, you know, tell them why they should expand their boundaries. But I do think there is an importance to expanding the boundaries, right? So anyway, um, yeah. I do look forward to your future shows. I was trying to add something useful there. I don't know. don't think I did, but I, I, I think you're on to something and I don't think you're wrong at all in the idea of, you know, how much does the game add to, add to the fun and how to evaluate that. But I think it is going to be really subjective to the, to the whims of the gamers in that particular game you know, and the play styles they prefer. So I don't think it's a very easy thing to measure in a universal quantity. I think what games are fun for simulate people that love simulations is totally different than what games are fun for people that like to inhabit the characters and, and their, and, and the thing they love about role playing is speaking in the voice and seeing through the character's eyes. I think they're two totally sets of people that have different, different standards for fun. If that makes sense.
Keep up the great work. Talk to you next time. I, I totally agree with Jason here. Um, and it's sort of what I was trying to get at in um, my last response bit was that I think there is a, a sort of distinction between kind of um, evaluation as a tool for like, you know, the sort of universalist discussion of like, what is the best game and evaluation as a tool for self-understanding of kind of what's the game that I'm going to have the most fun with. Um, and that that's kind of, uh, you know, that's, that's a very important distinction. Um, partly because some of those universalist elements are, are not really, you know, very easy to get at. Um, and, and in particular, I think there's a way in which the kind of um, universalist discussion ends up kind of feeding into certain, um, in my opinion, uh, unexamined uh, assumptions often that, um, you know, I, I think it's a, a classic of kind of online discussion that um, people kind of take the discussion different levels of, of serious, essentially, and then um, apply different levels of sort of thought and, and um, analysis to what goes on. But I, I do think there's a way in which, um, in my opinion, a great deal of uh, sort of what's the best system discussion ends up kind of not like doing a very good job of talking about like, well, here's kind of the criteria for what makes a really good system. Or if they talk about criteria that gets put into very, very general terms, right? So, I, you know, a, a very regular thing I think is, you know, well, you know, the, the system that is best is the one that, you know, we have the most fun with. And it's like, okay, well, that's good, but that is, you know, very general and, and you know, without kind of subdividing anything, how are you even going to get at kind of the, the system that creates the most fun in a lot of ways. And especially if you're not going to separate out kind of the system created fun versus the fun of playing that system at the table, that it, it seems to me that there that's a, a classic issue of discussion. And I think it, it's useful for the sort of universalist and for the sort of personal understanding approach um, but that specifically a lot of my thought about it is to kind of do a better job of, you know, understanding what I like as a means of, you know, improving my own fun at the table and all of that sort of stuff. And um, I think that sort of gets into, you know, systems that cause fun versus uh, other stuff that causes fun and that that's a consideration, I guess, um, for me that I, I sort of should think more about. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that I think, I think it would be very difficult to say with any kind of, um, actual kind of, uh, the, the argument that like, well, this is the best game because it is the most fun. I think, you know, 
very, very quickly breaks down on the basis of, you know, fun being different for different people. And, and in particular, I think any game that is going to be sort of general enough to create a lot of that fun for all those different groups is going to sort of likely to end up um, being sort of so general that it kind of doesn't achieve those things very well, right? That kind of a classic idea of, you know, things that are general often, um, you know, don't necessarily do any of the specific things as well as the sort of things that are more specific. And, and especially with regard to, um, to RPGs, I think that the, the, answer will end up being something like, oh, well, you can, you know, make all of these kind of, you know, use all these alternate rules with this particular system. And it's like, okay, well, but then I have to do the work of coming up with all of these alternate rules, right? And, and, and picking the ones that are going to be appropriate and all of that sort of stuff. And that, that is not necessarily optimal either, right? And anyway, um, what I'm getting at it's just sort of, I, I really agree that there's a, a sort of, you know, an, an important element of subjectivity that is important to recognize, but that also I think there is a real value in creating kind of, um, you know, some sort of ground rules or, or sort of uh, foundational expectations um, that come into play when talking about those subjective things, right? In the same way that, you know, like, you know, whether or not you enjoyed a film is subjective, whether or not the, you know, film is, there are, however, kind of objective or, or more objective elements to um, a lot of, you know, things about film, right? That you can, you know, you can talk about sort of like, you know, how well, how, like, um, some of it is sort of subjective, but some of it is sort of, you know, th there are, and, and especially I think oftentimes it's sort of, you know, the, the kind of foundational stuff is objective and the sort of higher level stuff is subjective, right? But you can talk about like, you know, seeing the shadow of a, a, a boom mic on a, a scene and it's, you know, the, the way that that is sort of a, a clumsy uh, error in the sort of production versus, you know, does the sort of script, was it well written gets, you know, much more subjective, but it's kind of a important thing too. And I don't know, it sort of gets into kind of, yeah, laying down sort of foundational elements as a way to kind of bridge some of the subjective bits, I think. Hey, Arlen, just listened to 331. I allergies have been bad this year you, you know i've been suffering more than i normally do with allergies so you know i, I feel your pain not as bad as you do it sounds like sounds like yours are worse than mine so hang in there i hope your doctor helps you find the right solution i don't have any suggestions but just let you know you're not the only one out there and, you know it does seem to be pretty bad this year so take care actually never mind i'm gonna call you again i'm sure so let me listen to the rest of your podcast because i paused it when you finished that section of your show yeah, so I am happy to report um, my doctor did have a suggestion that basically involves um, kind of combining different sources of, of anti-allergen medication 
um, and it is working really well at present. So I'm uh, feeling quite a bit better, which is nice. That's interesting with the system shock and all that you're looking at working on. That's what Phoenix Command and those leading edge games do. There's no hit points or anything in there. You just, you know, depending on the character's resilience or toughness or whatever and where they're hit by the bullet and things like that, you, you effectively are making a system shock roll to see if they, you know, drop or keep going. So interesting stuff, and I look forward to see what you eventually develop out of it. Let me listen to the rest of your show. Hey, Arlen. Okay, this will be hopefully the last call. And yet the stuff about organizing RPG books to maximize their teaching potential is very interesting. I look forward to seeing how that project progresses for you. I, I did want to mention to you that, and it may just be the way you're recording, but your voice really faded out a couple times during that this episode. So there are a couple times I have to turn the volume up and turn it back down. So I just want to let you know that. But all in all, I'm glad I listened. Really interesting stuff. And I look forward to your next one. Take care. All right. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, System Shock. I'm definitely sort of thinking about that more and, and sort of this idea of um, kind of, especially as that plays into kind of the, the flow of combat as kind of defeat versus death as a sort of thing, right? And and kind of the point at which a an entity becomes non-functional, even if they're not actually kind of dead dead. And there's sort of a question there about, okay, well, so how does, like in D&D terms, how does like clerical magic fit into that, right? Could you, right, if you run a goblin through with a sword and they're not dead, but they're, they're like almost gone. And then, you know, after the fight, you have your cleric come over and zap them with a cure light wounds, right? Are they back or are they gone or what? And there's kind of a, an interesting question there. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the discussion. I'm sorry to hear that my voice was fading in and out. Um, I suspect that what happens is that basically, um, for those of you who don't know, and on the podcast, you can't really see it. Um, I have my microphone kind of on my left side and I have my, um, two monitors kind of directly in front of me and on my right, um, which I think means that as I kind of look over, especially towards the right monitor, that I can end up uh, not sort of speaking as directly towards the microphone. Um, and I think that's something that can, you know, happen as I'm looking at things or, or you know, scrolling through Twitter when I should be focused on recording and all of that sort of stuff. And um, so I hope that that uh, is all that that is. I guess if there's something else going on, I can do some research to figure out, like if my mic is not actually... Um, picking up things as well as it should or anything like that. I guess I'll see about that. And um, there might be a way I was thinking about if there was a way to sort of move my mic, although I kind of like having it over here as a way to sort of have it kind of out of the way when I don't necessarily want to talk to it as much. But it's one of those things that I guess I just need to, if I'm going to do that, I need to get in the habit of sort of making sure that I'm talking into the mic versus talking while I'm at my desk and the mic is near me as a thing. And also, I think one of the things that happens is that as I sort of get into things that I want to think about versus things that I want to talk about that I can kind of trail off and get quiet. And, and that's a sort of 
element of my kind of a, a sort of verbal tick that happens with me of sort of trailing off and, and getting quieter as I'm getting sort of into things that I'm especially kind of less certain about and, and want to kind of think about more before necessarily talking that much about. So anyway, all of that is to say, um, hopefully everything is good and uh, thanks for listening and thanks for calling in. And uh, now we're going to listen to Jay Webster. Hey, Alan, it's Che just calling in. Wanted to say thank you for Series 3, Episode 30, in praise of playing the rules as written, which I really enjoyed. I know that you were in the episode kind of criticising yourself and um, unsure of its um, uh, clarity, I suppose. But actually, you know, I got a lot out of it. It was really interesting, um, and I thank you for it very much. Got me thinking a lot about how much is the rules actually responsible for the good time I'm having at the table. Um, But one thing that did really pop in my mind was... Uh, Jeremy Bentham's hedonic calculus from utilitarianism. And when you were talking about fun and the relative degree of fun that I get from this set of rules at the table, I couldn't help but think, wouldn't it be fun to do a sort of Bentham on it and come up with the criteria by which your fun is enhanced at the table? Or maybe it's just me being a really sad moral philosopher. Um, But anyway, it was a good thought. And I thank you for that, man. Game on. Hey Alan, it's Jay. Just wanted to thank you for your episodes recently. And I know that you've been talking about doing religion in RPGs and, you know, kind of how that's presented in games. Being that I'm a religious education teacher, um, a moral philosopher and, well, generally all-round kind of nerd, I wondered if you actually wanted to have a conversation about it. Maybe, because you're talking about, like, there being podcasters block, and I wondered if maybe getting together and having a chat about it would help unblock um so i'm quite happy if you want to arrange a time sometime to kind of hop online record it and uh yeah do with it as you wish i think i'd enjoy a conversation with you about religion and rpgs i think it would be kind of interesting and maybe we'll just bounce off each other but it was just a bit of a random thought make of it what you will but the offer's there man game on all right that is uh che webster calling in um, you guys have probably heard his religion in RPGs suggestion, Colin, if you have listened to my uh, recent episode on that subject, because his uh, Colin sort of spurred me into action, um, which is not to say that I don't want to talk to Che about uh, those things. Um, the, the Ocean Disturbed by the Titan's Blood is the name of that particular episode. Um, and I played his call-in at the beginning of that, and that's uh, 332. Um, yeah, and I, I would really like to talk with Che about uh, religion and RPGs and all that sort of stuff once we uh, get a chance to, because I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, the, the sort of uh, yeah utilitarian hedonic calculus sounds uh, interesting and um, it, to go back to one of the things sort of Spencer said in the the last episode of this extended call-in show sounds very much like something, you know, um, something very silly taken very seriously that is sort of my uh, brand in some ways. So, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, I maybe we'll have to work on something like that in the future. Um yeah, so thanks to Che for calling in. Um, I am once again going to split things up here a little bit, um, which is to say that we have uh, gotten a whole bunch of podcasts 
and uh, are not at the end of all the call-ins, but we're sort of at the end of the time that I have for today. Well, not exactly, but I think you know what I mean, that I, I don't want to go to uh, much longer in this episode. So I'm going to split 333 into um, three episodes, apparently, an A, a B, and a C. Um, the last episode is actually going to be the one where a lot of the talk is about religion stuff. So we didn't get into much of that this episode. Um, although I did say some things that probably will, you know, upset some people if they feel like they got called out by the discussion on nostalgia and things like that. And anyway, basically what I'm saying is, um, yeah, I'm going to, uh, end this episode here and then do another episode to kind of finish up all of this call in stuff so that I will be back at kind of, uh, you know, back at, uh, a clean slate for the podcast. Um, anyway, so thanks to all of my callers in, in this episode and in last episode and in next episode. Um, Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and playing lots of games. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.